Good afternoon, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to Fortress of the Mind. And in this podcast, I'm going to read a selection from my new translation of Sallust, The Conspiracy of Catiline and the War of Jugurtha. And this selection that I'm going to read is something that's, uh, I think, important and also has a lot of relevance for today's political scene. It's a speech by Julius Caesar that took place in the Senate, the Roman Senate, when they were deliberating the fate of the conspirators. They were trying to decide what they should do with the captured conspirators. Some were arguing for leniency. Caesar was among those who argued for leniency. And there were some who were arguing for a harsh punishment. And Cato was in this group who was arguing for a harsh punishment. And the speech is important because, like all of the speeches in Sallust, it rises above its immediate environment and it contains lessons of profound importance about human nature, about politics, about society. And so I think that it's a nice way to get an introduction to the quality of of Sallust's writing. So I'm going to read this speech. And it's it's in a section or capitulum or chapter, if you want to use that word, uh, chapter 51. And in the paperback version of the book, it's on page 79, if you want to follow along. But... A few other things we should take note of here as well before before I start reading is um, questions in the Senate were decided by majority vote. And this was ascertained either by counting of votes, a, pro, a process called numeratio, or by senators moving to different sides of the, the chamber. And this, this system was called the discessio, discessio. So numeratio et discessio, the two ways of, of ascertaining votes. And all of this stuff is explained in my footnotes so that anyone who uh, wants to refer to these things can find it all in the footnotes. Some other things about the, the speech here. Um, in those days, the formal term of address that speakers would use to address other senators was uh, conscript fathers. In Latin, uh, patres conscripti. Patres conscripti. This was a a, a phrase used, uh, essentially a a boilerplate term of of respect. Uh, There were other terms when um, orators would address the the Roman people. They would use certain historical boilerplated terms like quiritas, Roman citizens, things like that. So so I just want you to know that. So when you hear that throughout the speech, you'll know what that is referring to. So let me, um, let me read this, and then you can form your own judgments and your own conclusions. Conscript fathers, all men who sit in judgment on uncertain issues ought to be truly free from rancor, favoritism, anger, and sentimentality. The mind cannot easily perceive the truth when these emotions obstruct us, and no man ever obeyed both passion and consideration at the same time. When you concentrate your mind, it produces sound judgment. If passion controls, then the mind is in its grip, and the intellect produces nothing. 
I should recall many times, conscript fathers, when kings and peoples inflamed by rage or undue compassion decided things badly. But I prefer to talk about how our forefathers acted wisely and considerately without regard for the passions of the mind. During the Macedonian War, which we fought with King Perses, the great and distinguished state of the Rhodians, kept afloat by the resources of the Roman people, was ungrateful and disloyal to us. But after the war was concluded and the Rhodians' situation was being debated, our ancestors let them off unpunished, so that no one might say the war's cause was due to a desire for plunder rather than a desire to avenge an injury suffered. The same thing happened during all the Punic Wars, when the Carthaginians often, both during times of peace and while truces were in effect, committed treacherous actions. The Romans never responded in kind when they had the chance. They asked more what would be consistent with their dignity, rather than asking what the law would allow them to get away with. You must be mindful of the same thing, conscript fathers, so that you do not pay more attention to the crimes of Publius Lentulus and the others than you do to your own dignity, and that you do not take more counsel of your anger than of your own good name. Now, if a suitable punishment for their actions can be found, I will agree to a new discussions. But if the magnitude of the crime exceeds all natural limits, I believe in using the existing remedies imposed by the laws. Most of those who have expressed their sentiments before me voiced sympathy for the fate of the Republic with eloquence and grandeur. They pointed out the cruelty of war and how it crushes the defeated, virgins and young boys raped, children ripped away from the protection of their parents, married women suffering the will of the victors, temples and households plundered, gore and fire in plain sight, and finally weapons, corpses, blood and grief closing in on every side. But, by the immortal gods, what would such a speech be made for? Is the purpose to make you outraged against the conspiracy? You think a speech will emotionally fire up a man who has not actually experienced such savagery? It is not so. No man considers his own injuries unimportant, and many consider their sufferings more serious than they really are. But freedom, conscript fathers, is being able to choose one thing or another. When those who live lives of obscurity commit some crime through anger, few people ever find out. Their reputation and fortune are the same. But for those gifted with great power who hold high positions, the entire world is aware of their actions. Thus, the least freedom is found in the greatest fortune. One ought to feel anger very little, and neither covet nor hate. What is anger for the common man is considered arrogance and cruelty when seen in a leader. As for me, I truly believe that every torture is not enough to compensate for the crimes of these accused men. But the majority of mortal men remembers only the most recent things, and in the case of bad men, it forgets their evil deeds and gossips about their punishment as if it were especially severe. I know for a fact that Decimus Silanus, 
a vigorous and powerful character, said what he said out of devotion to the Republic, and that at the critical moment he made use of neither favoritism nor partiality. So have I known the personal style and discipline of this man. In fact, his opinion seems to me not cruel, for what really could be cruel for such men, but instead alien to the traditions of our country? For surely either fear or the possibility of injury forced you, Solanus, to decide on a new kind of punishment when you were a consul-elect. It is unnecessary to speak about fear, especially since, thanks to the consul's diligence, the best men are serving as guards under arms. I can indeed speak about punishment, and believe this to be true. When grief and suffering dominate, death is not a punishment, but a deliverance from mortal cares. It erases all mortal misery. Beyond it, neither worry nor joys exist. But, by the immortal gods, why didn't you offer the suggestion that they be flogged? Was it because the Porcian law prevented it? But other law, other laws permit that. Once a citizen is condemned, he may be exiled rather than put to death. Or was it because it is more serious to be whipped than to be killed? What is considered devastating or too serious for men convicted of such a crime? If it was because whipping is too lenient, why does it make sense to, to adhere to the letter of the law on a minor issue when you have already neglected the spirit of the law in a major one? Who indeed will find fault with a decree passed against those who would destroy the Republic? Circumstance, time, and the whim of fortune direct all nations. Whatever happens to the defendants here will be justified. But consider, conscript fathers, the precedent of your decision for other cases. Every bad precedent first came from good cases. But when official power is wielded by incompetence or men who are less than good, this new precedent is transferred from those who are worthy and suitable to those who are unworthy and unsuitable. Once they had defeated the Athenians, the Spartans set up thirty men to manage the affairs of the Athenian Republic. These men at first began by summarily executing the most, the very worst and most hated men in the city. The population was quite happy and said that it had been well done. But little by little, permissiveness increased, so that both good men and bad equally could be killed at the pleasure of the junta, and the rest were kept in the grip of fear. In this way, civil society was brutalized. It paid a very high price for its irresponsible happiness. In our own memory, when the victor Sulla ordered to be slain Damasippus and others of his type, who had risen to prominence in the Republic through evil, who did not praise this order? Everyone said that these criminal rogues and divisive factionalists who had tormented the Republic with their schemes were deservedly put to death. But this was the beginning of a great catastrophe. For now, when someone wanted another's house or country villa, or even eventually his home furnishings or clothing, he would make efforts to add that man's name to the prescription list. Those for whom the death of Damasippus had been a celebration were themselves marched off to the executioner before long. The purge did not end until Sulla had satiated all his people with the confiscated property of the victims. 
I fear none of these things for our own times, or from Marcus Tullius. But in a large nation, there are many different types of characters. It may happen that at another time, and with another consul who has control over the army, some opportunistic lie may be believed as truth. When the consul then draws out his gladius, with this precedent in effect, and with the endorsement of the Senate, who will set a boundary for him or try to control him? Our ancestors, conscript fathers, were never lacking in prudence or audacity. Pride never prevented them from imitating foreign institutions as long as they were sound. From the Samnites they took their armor and weapons of war, and mostly from the Etruscans did they adopt the symbols of civil office. Eventually, whenever something suitable was encountered from friendly nation or foe, they embraced it at, embraced it at home with the greatest enthusiasm. They preferred to learn from those who were successful rather than be jealous of them. But at the same time, imitating the custom of the Greeks, they adopted the punishment of flogging for citizens as well as the death penalty for those judged guilty. Later, the Republic matured, and factions of citizens grew along with the population. The innocent began to be maltreated, and other injustices took place. So the Portian Law and other statutes of this kind were prepared, in which the condemned were legally given the option of exile. I believe, conscript fathers, that this is a compelling reason why we should not quite take on a new policy. Certainly the masculine virtue and wisdom of our ancestors, who created this empire with few resources, was superior to ours, seeing that we can hardly preserve what we inherited. Is it right for them to be sent away to augment Catiline's army? Absolutely not. I believe their assets should be forfeited to the state, that they should be kept in custody in the municipalities having the most suitable resources, and that no one bring any of their cases before the Senate nor attempt a public referendum. Should anyone try otherwise, the Senate should consider him as acting against the state and public security. So this is the this concludes the Caesar's speech in um, in Sallust's uh, conspiracy of Catiline, and immediately following the conclusion of this speech, Sallust describes the speech of Cato, who offered his rebuttal and counter-argument to the arguments of Caesar, which hinged, as you heard, on sound matters of policy. Essentially, what Caesar is arguing in his speech is that it would be a dangerous precedent to eliminate the conspirators. It would, it would not be in keeping with the wisdom of the ancestors of the Republic to do such a thing, because it would then likely be used in the future by some other unscrupulous strongman to carry out his own uh, prescriptive agenda. So there are arguments both ways. There are arguments both ways. And in any case, it cannot be denied that the speech is a concise and masterful presentation of, of rhetoric, of persuasive rhetoric. And this is just one of many, many, many uh, uh, scenes and passages in Sallust that are unforgettable, really, in many ways. And I describe a few of those in the introduction. 
the speeches of Marius, of Cato, of Caesar, the description of some of the battlefields, the capture, the fall of the Roman garrison at Vaga, the complex scheming and double-crossing and backstabbing that goes on at all levels. This really is the stuff of great drama. And this is why Sallust is so important and, and merits reading today, because the lessons that you'll find in this book are timeless. They have direct and irrefutable relevance for today's political scene. And one only has to glance at today's political scene to understand why I say so, why I believe this to be the case. So I hope you will use this as an appetite wetter for your explorations of Sallust. You can find the book on my website, qcurtius.com. On the right-hand side of the website, there's an icon for the book, for the cover. You just click on that. I will also include a link at the uh, at the post that accompanies this podcast. So there it is. Until next time, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night. <laughs>